No, the magnetic is a wandering point. The geographic one is pretty much stuck where it is. And I mean, the geographic one is all pretty now. They've got all kinds of flags of the world set up down there. But yeah, the the the, the magnetic one makes you hunt for it. You gotta work for that one. It's not easy like the geographic South Pole. Are you slut-shaming a geographic point on the planet Earth? Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe she didn't... She didn't want all these explorers trying to come hit her up in the middle of the midnight sun. Maybe she should have dressed a little better, huh? <laughs> Put it up a bit, a little bit of foliage. <laughs> Put up some foliage. Oh no. Alright, we're slut shaming the planet. Just flaunting your penguins. <laughs> you thought. Yep. Alright. What a what a hussy that geographic south point is. <laughs> Not like that Trollope. chased ankle cover in Magnetic South. Oui, c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. Welcome back to Fat, French, and Fabulous. I'm Jessica. And I'm Janelle. Now from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Mm. Bright lights, big city, small town. <laughs> Ooh, so pretty. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I grew up in Alberta, and sometimes the Dixie chicks, they call to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I now live across from an incredibly seedy motel. And a non-profit housing agency in the uh, in the north end of Halifax. You're across from the hotel. Oh no no no! Hotels are fancy, Jessica. I'm across from the motel. Oh well. <laughs> <laughs> and all night long, cars that are way too expensive for this part of town show up, <laughs> stay about fifteen twenty minutes, forty five at the most, and then That's they a leave again. Suspicious amount of time. I'm watching COVID spread across Halifax in real time. <laughs> There's, like, the only vehicles on the street outside my new apartment are either, like, incredibly fancy sports cars or, like, a dude with one shoe on a bicycle. Like, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) And one of those things doesn't belong, and it's not Bike Man. (laughs) Bike Man is in his natural habitat. I'm also across from a music performance space. Like, it's a windowless building that says music on it. And last night at like four o'clock in the morning, a whole bunch of vans with their headlights off just came out of the parkade all at once. (laughs) (laughs) This is perfectly normal business. We have dance party now. As I, my desk faces the window and it is distracting. I'm just gonna watch out the window and just write down what happens. It's pretty much good enough. Mm, the next great Canadian novel. Oh, it's certainly true crime. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost definitely true crime. But uh, while uh, while Janelle is picking up future podcast topics from the parking lot outside her window, uh, today's subject is actually the heroic age of Antarctic exploration and the race to the South Pole. 
though in this part we will be focusing specifically on explorer uh, Robert Falcon Scott, unquestioned owner of the world's coolest middle name and the world's grisliest silver place medal. Damn, Falcon is an excellent middle name. Falcon, dude. I would name a child, like not my child, obviously, just any child I saw. I would name them Falcon. I wouldn't hide that. Like, don't bury the lead, Robert. Don't lead with that fucking Bob here. Call him Falcon. Commit. (sighs) (laughs) He's already got a perfectly good first name as his last name. Let him be Falcon Scott. The fourth prime minister of Canada was named John Sparrow Thompson, and that's oh. way less cool. I mean, and he's he's in my top ten for that very reason. Sparrow. <laughs> Sparrow. He died in his lunch, having lunch with the queen. Oh, that is delightful. That's how I want to go. <laughs> named after a bird in front of Lizzie the Great. <laughs> Excellent. Well, since it's not a true crime topic this week, but I think it's probably no. one of the grosser topics we've covered. Yeah, but you don't you don't know why it's going to be gross. You just have a suspicion because I'm way too happy. No, I just I know <laughs> it's going to be gross. Yeah, like the last time we talked about somebody being lost somewhere dangerous, he ate like seven other people <laughs> <laughs> and stole a lot of shoes. Allegedly. 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 Allegedly stolen shoes. The the man-eating, that is for sure, though. I, I, there's, there's no good outcome when you're lost in such an inhospitable climate. You either go, like, full Donner Party and you eat each other, or you eat whatever's available, which I assume in, in the Antarctic is just horrifying. I guess you just stomp on a penguin till you can get it down. I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes foreshadowing is obvious. Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, So in the modern day, we take for granted that the world holds very few grand mysteries. The continents are all mapped, their flora and fauna heavily cataloged, and even their harshest and most remote regions, typically populated by a handful of plucky scientists who've traded a solid internet connection and regular episodes of Keeping Up with the Kardashians for spiders the size of birds and what had better be an absolutely banging research paper. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, this, this only holds, insofar as we count, nothing more than the surface of the globe. The ocean floor remains largely unmapped and unexplored by anyone other than fish due to the difficulty and danger involved. Listen, I saw an excellent documentary on what's at the bottom of the ocean. It's called Pacific Rim 2, and it taught me <laughs> all that I need to know. <laughs> First of all, you and I are drift compatible. <laughs> but the uh, the resulting psychological damage, you probably would not survive. <laughs> Listen, it was very clear that we should not go down there. <laughs> it was an excellent documentary. <laughs> See, my my favorite na- my favorite nature documentary I once saw when I was mildly concussed, and I was watching this this video of like a polar bear swimming around, and the voice describing the life of the polar bear wasn't like David Attenborough, it was Queen Latifah, <laughs> just fucking talking about polar bears. And oh walrus. my god, I would watch literally sixteen straight hours of that. Like, I had to look it up to realize that that was real. Because <laughs> I wasn't sure. <laughs> it 
Antarctica itself was first sighted only in 1820 by a Russian ex expedition led by Fabian Gottlieb von uh, Bellingshausen and Mikhail Lazarev. This despite the fact that scholars going back to antiquity theorized an undiscovered southern continent based on a, the rather barmy premise that the land masses in the northern hemisphere must have some equal and opposite counterweight to the south. This proposed continent was commonly called Terra Australis Incognita, the unknown southern land, until New Holland was renamed Australia by the British in the 19th century. That seems way too recent to have discovered Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, oh is that weird? Like, we only, because, like, we thought that there was an Antarctica, but we didn't know until the 1800s. Nobody, like, went down to the bottom of Chile and peered off the end? Like, <laughs> I mean, like, there's penguins in the southern parts of Africa and South America. Nobody, nobody had any questions about where those came from? <laughs> I mean, they they probably thought that they that was just, they were from South Africa. I don't know. I don't think the penguins told them. <laughs> That's why they dress like James Bond. You can't get anything out of them. Oh, God. Galileo had pretty much mapped out the solar system in the early 1610s. It feels really strange that we knew where Jupiter was before we knew where Antarctica was. <laughs> it's incredibly weird. It feels like we did that out of order. We didn't do this right. <laughs> it's like if your baby learns to crawl and then goes directly to pole vaulting. Like, it just, it feels like you've missed a stage. There's, here's, like, the weirdest coincidence I have ever run into in my life. It bothers me. It keeps me up at night. The name Antarctica is derived from early Greek writings about the South Pole, which include Aristotle's book Meteorology circa 350 BCE. Antarctic means opposite of the Arctic, which is basic enough. But the Arctic itself is derived from the Greek word Artikos, meaning of the north, but also literally of the bear, because the Greek word for the far north is a reference to Ursa Major, the great bear, one of the largest, brightest constellations in the northern sky. So the Arctic is quite literally the land of the bears, and the Antarctic the land opposite of the bears. Names they were given by people who had never explored either. <laughs> they just it just seemed like there there was probably bears up there. And in fairness, they fucking nailed it. One of them has bears, one of them has no bears. Yeah, it just bears are a northern just sort of feeling animal. <laughs> and you know what? They they kinda nailed it. <laughs> they, they nailed it! That also, was dead on. <laughs> in fairness, Australia is also an incredibly lazy thing to name a southern continent. Australis yeah, just, means, just south. means south. That's all that it is. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Australopithecus just means south ape. Like, it's just, it's a very lazy thing to name a continent. It's kind of like how swordfish, the, the scientific name, it's like, it's like sword in Latin and then sword in Greek. <laughs> that upsets me every day. Or how we couldn't come up with better names than North and South America. I mean, right? These, this is an incredibly large and distinct landmass. Uh, this is the north bit. That's the south bit. Fuck it. Call it a day. <laughs> we have North America. We have South America. We have really far East America. 
uh, that's otherwise known as Asia, Russia, other, or as I know it, America a little bit to the left. We have <laughs> up America, that's the moon. <laughs> Earth's magnetic North Pole was located as early as 1831 by an expedition led by British explorer Sir James Clark Ross, but Ross was unable to reach the Magnetic South during his four-year 1839 expedition aboard the HMS Erebus and HMS Terror. And if the names of those two vessels seem at all familiar, it may be because they are the same two ships that sailed under the command of Sir John Franklin in 1945 in search of a Northwest Passage around North America and disappeared in the Canadian Arctic, the infamous Lost Expedition. We may at some point cover Franklin's expedition, as it contains several favorite themes of this podcast, including Canada, cannibalism, and lead poisoning, but today is not that day. <laughs> After Ross, interest in Antarctic exploration went into a lull for several decades, reawakening at the turn of the 20th century. Dr. John Murray, a biologist who took part in the 1872 Challenger expedition to the Antarctic Ocean aboard the HMS Challenger, which did not explode. Uh, I was in... going to say, hang on a second. <laughs> you were on the Challenger. You didn't get to board any expeditions ever again. No. But that makes that more was... sense. <laughs> I hope you got your boarding in because you were done after that. <laughs> oh. Okay. Not the, not the 1980s doomed space shuttle Challenger. No, the 1872 wooden ship <laughs> <laughs> i've been like i've been home with my dad with since this pandemic started and my dad has absolutely no sense of time like he was present at my birth he should absolutely know what year i was born it, we for some reason things keep coming up we're living through a moment in history right now and we keep talking about like big moments in history like you know where you kind of remember where you were and my dad keeps looking at me and being like and what were you doing when the space shuttle challenger exploded do you remember and i was like i was three years from being born <laughs> yeah i don't know if you I remember was, this considering you were deeply involved <laughs> i was floating in the void like, uh, i did not exist yet? i was and he keeps being absolutely shocked to hear this he's like what do you mean you don't remember the space shuttle challenger it's like well <laughs> dad <laughs> you've been here the entire time where do you think I'm still i was part of your body at that point like holy shit dad what were you doing you were just round up <laughs> uh after his time of the challenger dr john murray gave a november 27th 1893 lecture the renewal of antarctic exploration advocating further research into the region in 1897, the Belgian Geographical Society launched an expedition led by Adrien de Gelache, whose crew became the first to winter in Ant the Antarctic Circle after their ship became stuck on the ice on February 28, 1898. This left them trapped for over a year until they managed to free themselves on March 14, 1899. Oh, that's miserable. <laughs> yeah, over the winter, several men were driven mad, not only by the near month-long darkness, but also the isolation that came with language barriers between crew members of different nationalities. It's a rough time to not have Duolingo. <laughs> Just, at the very least, you want to Google that shit. I mean, having food in daylight would also be nice, but, you know, Duolingo is a bare minimum. I could use a sad lamp, but I will take a dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's rough. Uh, 
Antarctica has the same effect that we see when we're super far north here in Canada, which is that it's kind of a six months darkness, six months daylight kind of deal. The Southern Cross expedition, led by Karsten Borkgervink and pi- privately financed by British magazine publisher Sir George Nunes, launched on August 23rd, 1898. It sailed under the British flag, as desired by Nunes, though only two members of the expedition were British, the others being five Norwegians, two dog handlers from the indigenous Sami people of Finland, and an Australian. Hmm. An eclectic bunch. Also, hilarious that magazines used to make enough money to fund Arctic expeditions. Can you imagine? Antarctic expeditions. It's hysterical that they used to be able to fund anything. It's like if the Washington <laughs> Post just went to the moon. <laughs> it was like if if the New York Times had a space program. <laughs> Instead of laying off their employees every week. Yeah, what a time to be alive. They landed on Cape Adare on February 16th, 1899, where they set up a base camp. Over the next year, the landing team conducted numerous scientific observations, collected specimens of local wildlife, and killed and ate an ungodly number of seals and Adelie penguins. Oh. <laughs> By which That's I gotta mean be an acquired any taste. penguins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, to be clear... Nice things are not going to happen to animals a lot in any of this story. (laughs) If I bring up an animal, they're getting eaten. (laughs) Just guaranteed. (laughs) There's only like four things that live on Antarctica, so you've got to eat them. You got to do it. Yeah, if if you want me to to lay out their taxonomy, uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner, tea. <laughs> the four basic genuses of Antarctica. Uh, after successfully wintering in Antarctica with only one dead zoologist to mar their record, the Southern Cross team departed for England on January 28, uh, 1900. Um, incidentally, the only way they got the dead zoologist into the ground was they dynamited a hole. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> But also, can you imagine having such little to live for that some magazine millionaire is like, hey, do you want to spend half a year in Antarctica eating penguins on a chunk of ice? And you're just like, you know what? Sure. Zoology isn't going as good as I thought it would. (laughs) Like, what has to be wrong with your life for that to seem like a good option? Borkervink's achievements were not particularly well received at the time due to per- uh, perception that he was something of a braggart, and furthermore, not British, earning him the personal dislike of Royal Geographical Society President Sir Clements Markham. The audacity. <laughs> Where is your accent, good sir? Where is your stiff upper lip? Clearly inferior. Look at him, you have a chin. <laughs> <laughs> Never trust a man with a chin. <laughs> Borkrovink was later massively overshadowed because his modest, reasonable foray into Arctic re- Antarctic research simply wasn't as splashy or dramatic as the tragic overambition of future, far more British explorers. Although it might be because of the name, it is a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> if you can't butter a crumpet, you can't go to Antarctica. Everyone knows that. <laughs> Well-behaved explorers with insufficient mustache rarely make history. <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt that no one else understands. <laughs> I just want to confuse my grandparents. It's been a while since I was 
14. <laughs> this brings us to then Naval Lieutenant Robert Falcon Scott. Markham, who had been in the habit of scouting out talent for potential polar expeditions, had first noted Scott as an 18-year-old midshipman for his intelligence, enthusiasm, and charm. And after watching Scott win a cutter race from across the bay at St. Kitts in the West Indies, which is not at all suggestive or homoerotic, uh, just an older man taking a firm fatherly interest in a strapping young naval officer, as he had many other similar young men. <laughs> you know, as as one does. <laughs> we do all the manly things like spooning. <laughs> Rowing, of course. The occasional wet t-shirt contest. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in June of 1899, when Scott had another chance meeting with Markham, he was the sole provider for his mother and two unmarried sisters following a series of family tragedies. The bankrupting of their finances through poor investment, the death of Scott's father by heart disease in 1897, and the death of his younger brother by typhoid in 1898. Basically just missing a mysterious house fire and an uncle with a tattoo of an eye on his ankle. Uh, advancement in the Navy was highly competitive, and it's probable that Scott's attraction to the expedition was a mixture of ambition and financial stress. Scott wasn't Markham's first choice, nor did he have any experience with polar exploration, but Markham's other preferred candidates were all either unavailable or growing long in the tooth. I was gonna say, you know what, when you're trying to pay people to go fucking die on an ice floe at the bottom of the world, you take who you can fucking get. Yeah, do you know how many people have been eaten by glaciers? <laughs> the only qualification is willing to go, <laughs> not allergic Legs, to penguins. Pulse. That's it. Penguins. <laughs> In May 1900, at the age of 31, Scott was promoted to commander and appointed to lead the next British-backed mission to the South Pole, with the backing, likewise, of Markham. The Royal Society of London, which is distinct from the Royal Geographical Society for reasons I do not know, pushed for a scientist to have primary authority over the expedition, and the joint committee organizing the mission had appointed John Walter Gregory, professor of geology for the University of Melbourne. However, Scott and Markham, himself a formal naval officer, insisted on, on Scott having unilateral and ambiguous authority, leading to Gregory's resignation. This led to the expedition having a somewhat inexperienced science team alongside a likewise thin and inexperienced accompaniment of naval officers due to the Royal Navy's commitments elsewhere. So basically, men are too emotional to go to the bottom of the world, is what we've learned here. Oh, exactly. This is going to get histrionic immediately. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is going to be... A bunch of people who think they're perfectly rational and then therefore cannot tell when they're being hysterical bitches. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is going to be undignified. <laughs> what happens in Antarctica stays in Antarctica. <laughs> That's where I'm taking my, uh, my hen party. <laughs> Are you getting married? That's the most alarming news of all. <laughs> They're like, yeah, you're going to Antarctica, but like, really? With a ring and everything? If I got an invitation to a hen party of yours, I wouldn't even notice it was in Antarctica. I would be too startled by the fact that you were engaged. Yeah, and then you'd come and it would just be actual chickens. 
<laughs> like, ah, oh, you know what? This makes sense. I, like <laughs> I, I, I take away all reservations. <laughs> I wish I wish all the happiness <laughs> in the world to you. <laughs> you may now peck the bride. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica, stop marrying livestock. <laughs> we love each other, Penny and I. <laughs> oh, God. What men the Royal Navy would spare were supplemented by officers and crew from the Merchant Navy, including a navigator, second-in-command Albert Armitage, and third officer Ernest Shackleton. Uh. If the Navy decides that you are non-essential enough to send you to Antarctica, it's basically them telling you that you are completely disposable. (laughs) Like, yeah, we've got some wars going on, (laughs) but you can die in the ice. (laughs) It won't be that much of a loss. <laughs> like, bring him back if you can, but you know, you can just keep him. It's fine. If, if something happens, it's okay. We hear that what's what happens in Antarctica stays in Antarctica, so if you have to eat him, you know, do what you can. <laughs> Make it quick. That's all we're asking. Everyone was chosen for this expedition by flavor. <laughs> Uh, half of the financing for the 90,000 pound expedition was provided by the British government with the stipulation that the amount was to be matched through private donations. I'm sure that's like four gazillion dollars in today's money. Oh, it's just an insane amount of money. You could you buy could a literally, city with that. Like, it's... like, it is a ridiculous amount of cash. And it's a ridiculous amount of cash. What are they expecting to find? The magnetic south pole is just a piece of ice where your compass won't work. That's yeah. <laughs> there are there are cheaper ways to get a really spinny compass. Fifty one thousand pounds of it went to the construction and modification of the vessel for the voyage, the SS Discovery, which is a one hell of a pimped ride. The expedition likewise received no small amount of corporate sponsorship, including mustard and flowers supplied by English condiment manufacturer Coleman's, custard powder from Bird's, lime juice from Evans, Lesher, and Webb, and a 40% discount on special clothing from Jaeger. 1,600 kilos of chocolate, courtesy of the British confectioner Cadbury's, and beef extract via Bovril. Most of those food items are things that literally only British people eat. Absolutely. <laughs> I literally half of those things I have never put in my mouth. And only one of them is the specialty clothing. Oh, I've eaten everything. <laughs> I'm half English. <laughs> I that being said, like the image in my head is just Scott like covered head to toe with adverts like a race car driver. <laughs> That was my first thing, too. You said corporate sponsors. I'm like, who's gonna see it, though? I'm also not sure that finding out a company's products were eaten on the way to the South Pole makes me want to buy it. Like, I don't... I don't want to eat freeze-dried food just because that's what astronauts eat. Like, it's not... That was exactly (laughs) what I was gonna say. Like, just because freeze-dried ice cream was given to astronauts does not mean it's tasty. In fact, it means quite the opposite. (laughs) (laughs) Any food that's gonna be carried with somebody who won't have access to refrigeration or a stove for four months is not particularly appetizing. 
yeah, I don't want an MRE from the military. Like, yeah, it's going to be nutritionally sufficient, but it's not going to be delightful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure the, the people on the expedition were glad to have it, but like... Yeah, I don't doubt that. I don't need to choose between powdered custard and liquefied seal brain. I'm I'm good, thanks. <laughs> like I'm open minded. I am not seal brain open minded. Not as open minded as that seal in any case. Scott sourced equipment for the expedition in consultation with legendary Norse explorer, scientist, diplomat, humanitarian, later Nobel Peace Prize laureate, and overall teacher's pet, Fritjof Nansen. Armitage likewise acquired 25 Siberian sledge dogs in line with the wishes of the expedition's financial backers. However, Markham, who had never seen skis in use, advised Scott against using either skis or dogs in pulling the sled, as man-hulling with the strength of solid British men on solid British legs would be more than enough to carry them across the icy tundra. It seems like a bad plan. Yeah, they brought the dogs along, but hardly treated them as a serious option, neglecting to even bring a trained handler. Uh, funny enough, uh, sled dogs are banned in Antarctica to this day because of how poorly past expeditions have treated them. Pretty inhumane. And again, sometimes foreshadowing is obvious. Also, what's funnier is that the reason that they use sled dogs is because the very first attempts to go on Arctic and Antarctic expeditions used horses. And you can imagine how that went. Oh, you won't have to. I'll describe it in the second part of this. <laughs> oh, please, God, no. Horses, horses originate from the Mediterranean. They're, they're indigenous to Spain. <laughs> so, they're not ready for the winter. <laughs> like, I've got a chihuahua who manages to live in northern Canada, but uh, it doesn't mean she's good at it. And it doesn't mean I'd take her to the fucking Antarctic. No, her habitat is a Gucci purse. <laughs> She's on my bed behind me right now because she's decided that this bed is hers. This is the dog bed. I ordered a queen, brand new queen bed, and it's already mostly dog hair by weight. <laughs> she's just two little eyes sticking out from under my duvet right now, glaring at me. She's where she's home, Janelle. <laughs> she, was, she was not meant for the outdoors. The Discovery Expedition left the Isle of Wight in the English Channel on the 6th of August, 1901. They stopped in New Zealand for three weeks for final staging on November 29th, the delay in part because the specially built ship turned out to be very slow and leaky, with a top speed of six knots or 11 kilometers per hour. Wow. The ship... Yeah, that is a brisk walking pace, thank you. <laughs> is the Antarctic coastline a school zone? Why... <laughs> Oh, man, like, is the skipper high? <laughs> <laughs> 11 kilometers an hour, that's, whew, that's a brisk whew. walking pace. That is a slow jog. Like, there are people with two metal hips who could blow past you going 11. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, like, were they anticipating a construction site? Like, what? <laughs> The ship required repair and dry dock upon arrival in New Zealand. Uh, the Discovery left Littleton Harbor on the 21st of December, set off by cheering crowds. But during their departure, an intoxicated able seaman, Charles Bonner, fell down from the mainmast and died, which probably brought the mood down a little bit. Oh, 
just died. Just just straight up just died. Just straight <laughs> died. Just fell off the boat and died. Oh. I think he fell onto the boat off of a different part of the boat. <laughs> well, that does kill the mood a little bit. That is a bit of a wet blanket. Can you imagine, too, like, finding out, like, oh, your loved one died on a, you know, heroic expedition to the bottom of the world. Oh, was he, you know, did he freeze to death? Did he fall through the ice? No, 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 he fell off the boat. Didn't even make it to Antarctica. Just, he, he fell off of, <laughs> yeah, he, he, got, he fell off the mast. He got pissed and died in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> he died on the boat. He died as he lived. <laughs> Carelessly. <laughs> Crashing through the deck of a leaky boat. How do you fall off the mast when you're going 11 kilometers an hour? I mean, that, that's the thing that makes me think. I'm like, yeah, he was drunk, but like, you're a sailor, you're always drunk. How drunk were you? <laughs> Are you not used to a little bit of sway? You could have held on with a skateboard behind the boat at that speed and been just fine. <laughs> How did you fall off? <laughs> did you break suddenly like... <laughs> how would you <laughs> oh, you know these you know these newfangled ships they they stop on a dime <laughs> uh, on January 9th 1902 the discovery landed to cat Cape Adare, where members briefly disembarked to examine the remains of the Southern Cross Expedition's camp from there, they sailed south along the Victoria Land coast, turning east at McMurdo Sound, and one more landing at Cape Crozier to set up a prearranged message point to guide and communicate with relief ships. The ship then followed eastward along what was then known as the Great Ice Barrier, later renamed the Ross Ice Shelf, a 600-kilometer wall of ice rising 15 to 50 meters above the ice. That's 370 miles, and 50 to 150 feet for our listeners in the plague-ravaged waste of the, to the south. Here in the plague-ravaged waste to the north, we use a logical base 10 system. <laughs> Americans. <laughs> Americans. What a species they are. <laughs> Fascinating. On February 4th, Scott launched an observation balloon from the barrier in order to conduct an aerial survey from 180 meters or 600 feet up, though his flight and a second by Shackleton afterwards only confirmed that the featureless surface of the ice shelf continued as far as the eye could see. They then returned west in search of a permanent landing site. On February 8th, the Discover entered McMurdo Sound. A sound for the landlocked and uninitiated being an ocean inlet deeper than a bite and wider than a fjord. Although it can be thought of as a synonym for strait because English uses of the term is bizarre and inconsistent. Fascinating. Half of those words you don't even understand. I get it. Oh, <laughs> I'm boring. I'm a maritimer. I understand all of it because I live on an island. I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to the I pets. was like... A I, I was born on a boat. No. <laughs> no, but all of my family just fish for a living, me out so I got sea. that. But what it, I like what it basically boils down to is that, like, they arrive in Antarctica and they're like, I don't like this piece of ice. Bring me another. <laughs> and they do. In this case, it means an inlet slash bay thingy. There they set up camp in a small bay at the southernmost point of the sound, 
uh, which they then called Winter Quarters Bay, followed by calling the peninsula where they set up their huts, Hut Point, in a stunning fit of obviousness. Nonetheless, the soon ice-bound Discovery remained the primary shelter and store for supplies rather than returning to England. None of the Discovery were able skiers, and only two had experience with sledge dogs, those being Armitage and Louis Bernacchi, a meteorologist who had also joined the Southern Cross expedition. On March 11th, a small party of men became trapped by a blizzard on an icy slope, and able seaman George Vince slipped and fell off a cliff. The men were unable to recover his body, and a small cross was set up as a memorial, one that still stands to this day. That's, I mean, that's, it's bold. It's like, all right, guys, we're going to be skiing behind a bunch of sled dogs for two months. Who can ski? Nobody. And you've never seen a dog, any of you. Nobody. Perfect. Not a one. Although, at this point in the mission, I'm starting to worry about their semen count. (laughs) I just, I want that confidence when I go to my next job interview. They basically showed up and they're just like, yes, I've never been outdoors and I don't know what ice is. Perfect. You're hired. <laughs> You're ready to join. During the polar winter, which lasts from May to August, the team conducted experiments, took measurements, and engaged in entertainments, largely organized by Shackleton, including amateur theatrical productions, football, educational lectures, and a newspaper called the South Polar Times, edited by Shackleton. <laughs> I also just love that, like, you know how angry I would be if somebody's like, all right, I've organized the entertainment, it's just a bunch of us dudes out here on the ice, no one's around, and we're gonna have educational lectures! (laughs) Time for some Shakespeare! (laughs) I made a newspaper! Like, no, I, I would feed you to seals myself. It's just, you know, Shackleton, he tries. It's 1901. (laughs) You can get literally any narcotic you want at the grocery store. How did you not get sponsored by whatever the precursor to Coca-Cola? The cough syrup has opium in it. The soda has cocaine in it. And you come to party with a football and a homemade newsletter. I'm so angry. You could be up down here on the South Pole getting ripped on syrup, but instead you're engaging in intellectual debate. <laughs> you're disgusting. <laughs> like, you think your your little plays are going to keep you warm in the middle of the 24-hour darkness? No, only heroin can do that. Jess, this is this is why Jessica's not a scientist because she shows up to every expedition with just black tar heroin and a tie-off. <laughs> it's why I was excluded from the last mission. <laughs> it's just Jessica on an archaeology trip going, who's ready to mainline the good shit? <laughs> I'll give Danny what he likes. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, we're, we, we're gonna need you to leave the park. That's how Jessica got kicked out of an educational lunch and learn. <laughs> <laughs> PBS is not taking my calls. <laughs> uh, Telus, the Telescience Center has strongly encouraged me not to return. <laughs> Telus world of science. Oh, I can only imagine. <laughs> the children were upset, but they were learning. <laughs> It's very educational, you can't deny that. 
Scott, while intelligent and determined, was notably lacking in qualities like patience, calm, and a certain level of detachment. Oh. He came into conflict with the crew, attempting to enforce naval discipline on merchant sailors unfamiliar with the norms of the Royal Navy, including a disrespectful cook he had placed in irons. <laughs> to what end? Now there's just no food. <laughs> yeah, we just eat all of our seal raw. <laughs> You're punishing yourself. <laughs> I also love that like, whoever's putting this expedition together is like, alright, we're spending, like, several large fortunes on this trip. It's, like, one of the most important trips we've ever financed. Who's gonna lead it? How about this dude who loses his shit over nothing? <laughs> Perfect. I, I can only imagine that, like, all the rest of the crew, like, when the, the cook's finally freed, just look at it, Scott is going, like, you know he's gonna spit in it, right? He's gonna spit in it. <laughs> <laughs> like, alright, to go on this trip, you need... You need experience, uh, you need to be good at reading a map, and your head needs to burst like a fucking squished gusher every time somebody <laughs> speaks out of turn. It's healthy. <laughs> There's extra protein in the soup from now till you when you get home. Uh, Scott was balanced somewhat by the expedition's more level-headed junior medical officer and zoologist, young Dr. Edward Wilson, named, nicknamed Uncle Bill by other members of the party. Scott heavily favored Wilson, to the point that after first meeting him, Scott overruled a medical report that disqualified him from the expedition due to tuberculosis scarring on one of his lungs, souvenir of his time as a missionary in the slums of London. <laughs> oh, good. Good. We're going, we're going into, like, sub-negative 20 temperatures with a dude who has one and a half lungs. And if you're wondering if anyone else had any quirky nicknames, uh, third mate Shackleton was known as Shackle or Cautious Jack because they didn't know what nicknames were back then. Cautious Jack, that's not even a nickname. That's like a children's safety PSA mascot. Yeah, and like Uncle Bill, his name's Ed. <laughs> like, all right, And also kids, he's one of the youngest people on this Jack expedition. Is here to tell you to put in your outlet covers. Like, <laughs> Remember, kids, don't lick paint. Cautious Jack. <laughs> <laughs> awesome it sounds like a character from a psa about pool covers that's fantastic <laughs> at 10 a.m on november 2nd 1902 scott shackleton and wilson left camp on an attempt at beating the furthest southern point recorded uh, record set by the southern cross expedition of 78 degrees 50 minutes latitude south as a note, degrees of latitude are divided into 60 minutes, which can then be divided into 60 seconds each. That means that the Southern Cross Expedition almost reached the, 90, uh, the 79th parallel south. They brought with them five sleds hitched to 19 dogs and laden with carefully calculated rations of food and fuel so that no excess weight would slow them down. They wore skis, which they still used clumsily, and set off for a supply depot that had been set up during the winter and reinforced by a supply team who had left two days earlier with their own sleds. The secondary team would then accompany them as far south as possible before giving Scott's group their remaining supplies and turning to the main camp. Scott's party reached the depot midday November 10th, where the secondary party joined them at around 2 a.m. November 11th. The, on the 13th, they reached the, the 79th parallel, matching the Southern Cross Expedition's record, and on the 15th, the supply team split off 
shifting much of their supplies to Scott's team and turning back. On the 16th, however, the dogs began to balk, refusing to pull the sleds no matter how much cajoling on the, or the crack of Scott's whip. The first day, the team made only three miles of progress. The next day was much the same. I mean, at that point, you just put the dogs on the sled and pull it yourself. You'll go faster. Instead, the team returned to relaying, first taking three of five sleds ahead with a mile with the help of all 19 dogs, then returning for the final two, meaning that each man had to walk three miles in order to make a mile of progress. In addition to lack of training and expertise at dog handling among the team, part of the problem was that the dogs were malnourished, fed an insufficient diet over the winter, and now fed long-stored dried fish unsuitable to a hard-working sledge dog. On the 25th, they reached the 80th parallel, and on the 26th, Scott switched the team's marching time to avoid the heat of midday, which softened the surface of the tundra, making the terrain more difficult. At this point, all the men were suffering from frostbite, and Wilson, who kept taking off his goggles in order to sketch, snow blindness. Wilson's condition occasionally deteriorated to the point where he had to walk blindfolded or could be carried in the sled. Yeah, that'll do that. <laughs> Don't stare right at it. It reflects light. You might as well stare in the sun. <laughs> You're gonna go blind. Or become president. I mean, they really could have gotten a lot farther if they just hired, like, a Canadian. Because I could have told you any of this stuff. December 10th, one of the dogs died, and Scott fed it to the remaining 18. Oh, that's, uh, that's grim. <laughs> tensions between Scott and Shackleton ran high, mediated by Wilson. On the 15th, Scott ordered the creation of a second supply depot, where the team would, be, would leave the supplies they would need to return to base camp on the trip back northward, taking only a small four-week supply forward to lighten the load. They took very little dog food, and by the 21st, the men pulled the sleds alone while the dogs walked alongside. With hard work and smaller rations, Shackleton and Wilson began having hunger-induced nightmares, and all three fantasized constantly about food. This was less so the case for Scott, who as the only smoker may have had a reduced appetite. Just, he was having a whore's breakfast from one end to the other. You know, just one of you has tuberculotic scarring, the other one's a smoker. You know, it's good. <laughs> what a healthy bunch for this expedition. Those two aren't the ones who begin to deteriorate first. That's Shackleton. <laughs> Cautious Jack, say it ain't so. With their freshest food being only a small amount of frozen seal meat, first Shackleton, then the two others began to develop signs of scurvy. Ugh. Wilson first told Scott of Shackleton's condition, while Shackleton himself remained ignorant for several weeks. They didn't tell him? They're just like, oh, that guy's got scurvy for sure. Don't tell him, he'll freak out. He's just leaving a trail of teeth behind him, wondering what the fuck's going on. Yeah, and you might be thinking, wait, this expedition left port laden with a king's ransom and lime juice, courtesy of the corporate sponsorship of Evans, Lesher, and Webb. How the heck are they suffering from scurvy? Good question, imagined audience. <laughs> scurvy is an incredibly easy disease to prevent and treat. While widespread scurvy used to be common in the modern day, unless you are desperately poor, you have almost no you almost have to actively try to get scurvy. 
This is not a disease you acquire. This is a disease you achieve. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it's not even that common among the poor. I've been working with the homeless for years. Putting ketchup on your food occasionally is enough to keep you from getting scurvy. There's enough vitamin C in tomatoes to, to ward it off. Ketchup and tomato sauce are like staples of the poor man's diet. That's... Yeah. That's all you need. <laughs> like, only when you are poor and so picky, it is self-harmful. <laughs> Will you get scurvy? <laughs> My ex lived on gummy bears and ice cream sandwiches, and he managed to avoid scurvy. You will have no teeth for other reasons, but it will not be scurvy. <laughs> <laughs> but two straight months of frozen seal meat and salt fish and the occasional dog ass... <laughs> That'll that'll take you straight to scurvy town. Here's the interesting thing about that. Knowledge of the cure to scurvy is incredibly old, but it has likewise been forgotten and rediscovered multiple times throughout history. The early experiences of various sailors created a weak consensus in naval circles that the solution was to be found in fresh fruits and vegetables, particularly citrus. This was often rejected by the academic medical establishment, who, at the time, still believed in a variation of the four humors model of disease passed down by ancient Greek sources, where illness was caused by the levels and composition of different humors in the body. So, you know, maybe the reason why you're angry is because you have too much blood. (laughs) Have you tried having less blood? In 1601, English trader and privateer James Lancaster made an experiment out of the four ships at his command, giving one crew regular doses of lemon juice and leaving the other three as controls. Even as members of the other three crews gradually developed scurvy and even died, the crew of the lemon ship remained healthy. Why would you use three of the ships as controls? Why not do half and half, dude? (laughs) Yeah, like, you didn't even have to. Just to use two ships... And second of all, <laughs> stop once they start to let dying. Three ships full of people get scurvy to prove a point. Also, like presumably, you're a pirate in the 17th century. Every ship you've ever had has had rampant scurvy. You just need to give lemon juice to one ship, and if nobody gets it, you pretty much figured it out. You don't need a control group. I mean, I appreciate your dedication to the scientific method, but these men had families. (laughs) (laughs) They trusted you. Oh my god. At least two two other experimental groups. One group gets limes and one gets pineapple. (laughs) Three get nothing. Right? Like, learn something new. You don't need that many controls. (laughs) In... 1747, Scottish physician and naval surgeon of the HMS Salisbury, James Lind, performed a more formal experiment comparing various potential cures, where 12 scurvy-sick sailors were divided into pairs and given a daily dose of one of six potential cures for 14 days. These included a quart of hard cider, two oranges and a lemon, seawater, 25 drops of sulfuric acid, two spoonfuls of vinegar, and a nutmeg-sized combination of garlic, gum myrrh, mustard seed, dry radish, and balsam of Peru, which sound more like a marinade than a panacea, if I'm being completely honest. (laughs) Also, one of those groups sucks noticeably worse than the others. Who wants to be on team sulfuric acid? (laughs) Sulfuric acid! (laughs) 
I mean, I guess you die faster, so you don't have scurvy anymore, but holy shit. Like, this guy gets cider, this guy gets a confusing slurry of nutmeg, and this guy gets battery acid. Off you go. <laughs> like, you, if you're in the sulfuric acid group, you gotta be looking at your captain, go, your, your surgeon going like, okay, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> have I wronged God in some way? The two sailors on the receiving end of the spice paste cure were likewise given barley water treated with tamarinds and what my source described as occasional laxative dosage of cream of tartar, otherwise known as tartaric acid and potanium or, or potassium tartrate, which is used both in baking and as a cleaning agent for metal. <laughs> yeah, I, I bake with it all the time, but you use it in very small amounts and you definitely don't... Take it straight from the jar. This whole condition yeah. just sounds like when I used to bully my youngest brother into eating stuff out of my mom's spice cabinet. <laughs> it's just like, all right, time to find out what a big spoonful of chili powder tastes like. <laughs> tastes like death. <laughs> mm, tastes like round pain. cloves. <laughs> like. It's <laughs> <laughs> like it, what this came from was like a bunch of very serious doctors. Like, despite the fact that, like, there was an obvious thing that kept curing it, just had their own remedies that they were completely convinced of, because there was no such thing as objective truth. Unlike the other cures, the citrus supplies ran out after six days, but it was so effective that the recovered sailors were able to help care for the remaining ill men. The men who received the cider likewise seemed to improve somewhat, though nowhere near as drastically as the citrus group. Lind is therefore often credited with proving the efficacy of dietary citrus as a cure for scurvy, but the truth is he had no idea what he had on his hands. He <laughs> buried the key details of his study in five paragraphs around halfway through his 400-page magnum opus, A Treatise of the Scurvy, containing an inquiry into the nature of causes and cure of that disease together with a critical and chronological view of what has been published on the subject. Frankly, like many medical professionals of his era, Lind thought that scurvy was a digestive issue that caused internal putrefaction due to the difficult life and rough diet at sea. They honestly had no real idea of what scurvy was or what about citrus made that crucial difference. And essential micronutrients like vitamins were completely unknown during Lin's time. It wasn't until the late 1800s that discussion of unknown trace elements necessary to nutrition within common foodstuffs began to bubble up within scientific circles. <laughs> Vitamin C, otherwise known as ascorbic acid, literally anti-scurvy acid, was only discovered in 1912, a decade after the voyage of the discovery. <laughs> <laughs> People used to get a lot more goiters back before we knew about vitamins. There's a reason why most of your food is supplemented, and that's just to keep the IQs up and the faces symmetrical. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta keep that preventable blindness and unsightly neck swelling to a minimum. Furthermore, part of why it was so hard to pin down the commonality between all the foods that appeared to be improved the symptoms of scurvy is because vitamin C comes from such a broad range of sources. It's in fruit, it's in vegetable, it's in tubers, and even in raw and partially cooked meat of animals, which synthesize their own ascorbic acid within the body, which is most animals, actually. 
Uh, very few animals get all or most of their vitamin C through their diets, most notably primates like humans and guinea pigs. <laughs> it's just us. We're the worst. <laughs> we just forgot how to synthesize ascorbic acid because we're assholes <laughs> who don't need teeth. <laughs> Listen, we can synthesize our own taurine, so suck on that one, house cats. Eat it. It's, that's also why your cat will eat you if you die in your apartment. <laughs> it will have no choice. <laughs> it's got to do it. And uh, the guinea pigs are actually how vitamin C was discovered. When Norwegian scientists who had been studying the deficiency disease berry berry in pigeons switched serendipitously to guinea pigs. And after putting the pigs on a grain diet, they discovered that they developed not berry berry, but scurvy which had never before been seen in a non-human animal. It's, it's just us and the guinea pigs. We're in this together. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. So, like, if you cannibalize somebody because you're starving, and I understand you knew I was going to go there here. Some, we some we were always going to get to this you point. Knew. We were always going to arrive here. Could you get scurvy by participating too long in cannibalism? I guess it depends on how much vitamin C your victims ate. Yeah. And how well you cook them. Yeah, so, like, if you're gonna cannibalize them, I don't know what temperature you should do. Like, if you should, like, poach them, or if, like, you want to steam them. It seems like an important decision. You Well, you've either got to aim for someone who ate a lot of oranges and cook them mid-rare, or you've just got to serve them with ketchup. It's... <laughs> those <laughs> that's, are your that's the options. options. As a modern listener, you might not be entirely aware of the vitamin C present, present in raw meat. And that's because this is due to ascorbic acid's water solubility and relative fragility. It quickly breaks down when exposed to air, heat, or sunlight. And as most modern health guides suggest, cooking foods with an elevated risk of disease transmission, such as meat and eggs, meat is not generally recommended as a source of vitamin C. No, probably not. Yeah, and this is why certain cultural groups such as the Arctic Inuit and Yupik don't suffer scurvy despite traditionally living on a diet composed almost entirely of meat and organs. I've heard this. The, the reason that they, that they avoid scurvy en masse is just you're eating a lot of raw organ meat, which contains pretty much all the vitamins, to the point that your biggest risk is actually overdosing on vitamin B. Yeah, yeah, like, the, there's a problem if you eat polar bear organs that you might get poisoned by vitamins. <laughs> It'll make all the skin peel off your feet. <laughs> it's <laughs> absolutely oh, cartoonishly horrifying. That was that was one of the big obstacles to early expeditions to the Arctic, was that they kept eating polar bear liver, which has so much vitamin B12, it will absolutely kill you. All your skin just peels right off, and you die. <laughs> But yeah, the English insist on boiling and or cooking the shit out of every piece of meat they get their hands on. So, no vitamin C to be had. We tend to associate scurvy with long ship voyages and the age of sail, but any long period relying on only preserved food heavily increases the risk, because many preservation processes destroy vitamin C. This is why, historically, scurvy tends to be more common in cold climates during long winters. Scurvy broke out in large in a large number of children and infants in the late 19th century due to the widespread introduction of pasteurization, particularly among upper-class families. Poor children tended to be breastfed and quickly weaned onto adult food, but rich infants received a specialty diet of cereals and pasteurized cow's milk. 
This put doctors in a tricky position because while pasteurized milk might cause scurvy, raw milk definitely causes tuberculosis. <laughs> Among other things. <laughs> <laughs> Among other things. And instead, they solved the problem by supplementing young children's diets with potatoes and onion juice. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> I mean, delightful. Wow, that's. Ew, have some onion juice, mm. kiddo. <laughs> Just drink up. You don't want your face to fall off. <laughs> so you gotta pick between onion juice and teeth. What a life. <laughs> Uh, Lynn's work led to the adoption of regular doses of lemon juice under the British Navy in 1799, later an important strategic military advantage against the Napoleonic Wars, allowing English ships to remain in blockades around French ports for up to two years at a time. Lemons and limes were thought of as a roughly the same thing at the time, to the point where lime and lemon were often used interchangeably as terms. Ooh. As time went on, technological improvements in sea travel made long voyages less and less necessary, and scurvy can take up to six months of deprivation to develop, meaning when naval procurement switched from Mediterranean lemons to West Indian limes, the Royal Navy failed to notice any difference. Like all citrus fruits, limes are very high in vitamin C, but gram for gram distinctly lower than lemons. As an aside, I read a listicle online that listed tomatoes as a citrus fruit, and then I stared at the wall for a full ten minutes. They are acidic and they contain vitamin C, but they are not a citrus fruit. And, like, everything else on the list looks real similar. It's kind of like how a kiwi reproduces and has hair, but it is not a mammal. <laughs> yeah, potatoes have eyes, but you can't blind them. I... It's, it's just, a, just a little... Not quite. This substitution probably would have been fine if the lime juice had been fresh. But the processing usually involved long periods in open-air settling tanks and pumping through copper piping. Interacting with copper ions notably being just one of the many factors that can rapidly degrade vitamin C. Ooh. Here, guys, I have some room temperature lime juice that's been sitting in a vat for six months. In 1875, many of the crew of the British expedition to the North Pole under uh, George Nares uh, developed scurvy despite taking their regular doses of lime to the shock of the British Navy. Then, in 1894, members of the Arctic Jackson Harmsworth expedition developed scurvy after three years at a ship frozen in the ice, barring those who ate the organs and meat of freshly caught polar bears, regardless of their lime juice consumption. These incidents pushed the scientific community away from the common consensus that scurvy was caused by a lack of fresh fruits and vegetables and towards the ptomaine theory of scurvy. The idea that scurvy was caused by poisons within bacteria-tainted food stores accumulating in the body. Under this theory, it was the acidity of citrus that broke down these ptomaines in the body. Have some battery acid, it's all the same. And, like, you can kind of see where they're going here. You can kind of, because everything that has vitamin C, vitamin C is acidic, and everything yes. that's high in vitamin C is acidic, but also no. <laughs> and, and, like, they think what is happening is that there are trace elements they can't detect in their food making them sick, but what is actually happening is there are trace elements not in their food which is making them sick. <laughs> they're, they're close. They're close. They're close. They're so close. <laughs> but 
but they're also so wrong. <laughs> yeah, especially because they're not preserving any of this stuff the way that it's supposed to be preserved. They may as well have just given them cans of 7-Up for the trip. It would have done exactly as much. And Scott thought that by relying on tinned food, scurvy might be avoided. Scott oh, had no. each can opened in the pres presence of the expedition medical team and any and all suspect tins thrown away. But the crew nonetheless developed scurvy. Instead, Scott switched the team almost entirely to fresh seal and penguin, supplemented by watercress grown through the ingenuity of the senior physician Reginald Cutlets, a veteran of the Jack Jackson Harmsworth expedition. They had a watercress garden with them? That is the bougiest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> we are gentlemen at the pole, thank you very much. With our we get frostbite garden. with our pinkies held high. <laughs> Of all the vegetables to choose, watercress. Although that the reason why he had watercress is because it was a known alternate cure for scurvy. Interesting. Like it wasn't accidental. The rations allocated for sledge trips, however, were pemmican, a relatively light mixture of fat and dried meat. Fresh seal would have been too heavy to make an adequate replacement, so instead Scott had the meat repeatedly boiled in order to remove its moisture, resulting in a sort of odd seal concentrate that was only about twice as heavy as pemmican and almost exactly as useless as preventing scurvy. Oh, they make <laughs> pemmican a certain way for a reason, and that's not how you do it. <laughs> it's, mm -mm. it's dried. Mm -mm. It's definitely not repeatedly boiled until it's basically a piece of penguin tire. <laughs> just some pox of God, seal. the British just want to boil everything. <laughs> no, it's like they're a Afraid of flavor. <laughs> the culture that brought you mushy peas, we should not expect any better of them. Coming back to Scott's team. On December 29th, leaving Shackleton and two sleds behind at camp, Scott and Wilson marched out to plant the flag at the new official farthest most point of 82 degrees 17 minutes, before finally turning back on December 31st, banding one of their own sleds and returning to collect Shackleton. The return trip was aided by the strong northern winds, as Scott attached a sail to the foremost sled to pull them along the plateau. They were likewise hampered by, however, by the difficult weather and their own deteriorating physical conditions. A lack of vitamin C prevents the body from creating collagen, the main component in the body's connective tissue. It keeps you together. It's it's what keeps the you only together. thing it keeping you together. It's the glue that holds together your flesh, and it's everything too. Your bones are basically just collagen and a bit of calcium. At Scurvy's early signs, like inflamed gums and loose teeth, aren't too difficult to struggle through, but eventually the body's bones and capillaries weaken, leading to easier breaks and bruises. Like, this is what your veins are made of. It results in internal bleeding. Your body likewise loses the ability to repair itself, making injuries slow to heal, even reopening years-old wounds. Oh yeah, all your scars dissolve, which is pretty horrifying. Yeah. Scars are just collagen. Prolonged, untreated scurvy leads to malaise, lethargy, weakness, fever, convulsions, nerve damage, coma, and eventually death. No, it's not a good way to go. Uh, by the time the fever kicks in, it'll be the least of your problems. Shackleton, despite being the youngest, strongest member of the party, struggled in particular on the return journey. 
They reached the second supply de depot with some difficulty, as by then Shackleton was stumbling and coughing. Wilson took Scott aside and gave his medical opinion that he was unlikely to make base camp alive. In response, Scott killed the two remaining dogs. Uh, he presumably did this to better focus on keeping Shackleton alive and not simply as a way of expressing his feelings. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they already established this man has a fucking hair trigger and nothing to take it out on. Shackleton overheard the conversation and struggled on, internally determined that he'd outlive both of them. I mean, how do you have this conversation in private? You, go stand further that way. Stand in the imaginary ice corner. <laughs> You're on an echoey piece of ice. This is, this is difficult stuff. This determination, this pushing forward, caused Shackleton's condition to degrade rapidly, and eventually Scott ordered him to stop and promised not to exert himself. Oh. Instead of pulling, Shackleton walked alongside the sleds. He also began spitting blood. Sometimes he rode on the sled himself. At night, his coughing and seizures kept them all awake, and as temperatures warmed, the terrain grew soft and difficult. I just like the, how annoyed they sound. Your seizures are keeping me awake. How inconsiderate of you. Get it together, ma'am. <laughs> On January 28th, they reached the first depot, where the rest of the expedition crew had left them each news, letters, and an individual gift. After their arrival, a blizzard began, and by the next morning, Shackleton was incapable of speaking. His breathing labored. He grew dizzy and fell repeatedly when preparing for the day's march. They continued regardless, and after resting that night, Shackleton's condition improved though it still took him 20 minutes to strap on his skis in the morning. I mean, I'm not surprised he's struggling so hard to keep up. This dude has killed 25 dogs that couldn't keep up, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, at a certain point, the human beings are gonna get, start, str start to struggle, too. <laughs> if I was in line to be the 26th thing this guy had killed for not keeping up, I'd fucking get my <laughs> shoes on, too. <laughs> Like, holy shit. If you don't get those fucking shoes on, you're gonna wake up and see him going, shh, it'll all be over soon. Then he just smothers you with a, with, with, with a, like a thick slab of boiled seal. <laughs> oh god, like being smuggered, smothered with a fucking yoga mat. <laughs> just as rubbery, just as delicious. <laughs> <laughs> like one of those wrestling mats from gym class in high school. <laughs> Womp sounds exactly the same as when you chew it as when you fell on it when you were 12. <laughs> I assume that's exactly what a boiled piece of seal pemmican tastes like. Just chewy gym mat. Your teeth bounce back when you chew. <laughs> Finally, on February 3rd, they were greeted by Lieutenant Skelton and Louis Bernacki, who escorted them back to base. They had traveled 960 miles over 93 days, an average of just over 10 per day. And if that doesn't sound impressive, that's because it isn't. <laughs> Admittedly, my commute is through urban Vancouver with a small backpack rather than ant the Antarctic tundra with a heavily laden sled, but a normal hu healthy human being can walk 10 miles in around three and a half hours at a casual first stroll. They basically crab walked across the Antarctic. 
Yeah, a small team of trained men marching 9 to 10 hours a day with a team of dogs to help should be able to make far more ground per day on average, even pulling a significant weight under difficult conditions. I was going to say, like, sled dogs run the Iditarod, which is a crazy far race in not a very long amount of time. Yeah, like, if you have a well-trained team of dogs, you just need to put your feet up and know where the kibble's at. <laughs> but they're, they can go much further than you can. Yeah, the Iditarod, they cover 938 miles or 1,510 kilometers. And the fastest it's ever been done is in just over eight days. Eight days, three hours, and 40 minutes. Yeah, so, like, it's about the same length. <laughs> yeah, they can do it in eight days. These guys walked it in 93. <laughs> like, I don't know if the if the conditions are as good. I, it's probably easier to do the Iditarod than it is to do wild Antarctica when you don't know the map. But, like, it's the same distance. Your average person finishes it in less than 15 days. It's, <laughs> I mean, your average experienced sled dog runner, but that's really what they should have packed with them to go on a sled dog trip. Yeah, and like if you're if you're going sledding with your dogs, you should really have a sledge dog, dude. Like you have you have a geologist, <laughs> you have an assistant <laughs> geologist. Why don't you have a dude? <laughs> I mean, at least somebody to tell you to stop fucking shooting them and maybe feed them. During the team's absence, second-in-command Albert Armitage had led a reconnaissance expedition to the western mountains, reaching an altitude of 8,900 feet, or 2,700 meters, before returning, all without incident, accident, or undue suffering of any of his men, casting Scott's misadventure on the southern journey in an unflattering light. A relief ship, the Morning, had arrived only a few days before Scott's own return to base camp, bringing both news and supplies. When this morning left, Scott ordered Shackleton to return with it, in accordance with physician advice, but against Shackleton's own protests. He wanted to keep going? He wanted to keep going. He's keeping his he fucking teeth in with one hand and his fucking kneecaps on with the other. And he's just like, no, coach, put me in. I can do it. <laughs> he's not okay. <laughs> he's so unwell. He's gonna start coughing up ribs. <laughs> like his lips are covered in flecks of dry blood, <laughs> and he thinks that you're, he needs. You're held to together stay. by nothing. You're just a fucking glad bag full of organs right now. It's like you need a lemon and you need a nap. Go home. Go to Britain. Especially because, like, if he stays, he's there another year. <laughs> oh my god. The men aboard the ship watched the land retreating behind them, and once Scott's men fell out of sight, Shackleton broke down and wept. <laughs> you don't say. Yeah, and like, he just nearly died. I'd be a bit emotional too, but dude, go home. <laughs> go home. You're not being very cautious right now, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> How did you earn that nickname? <laughs> he hasn't done a single cautious thing on this trip. Why Absolutely is that the nickname? <laughs> the branding does not match the product. Uh, in a later account of the expedition, published in October 1905, The Voyage of the Discovery, Scott exaggerated the valor, val valor of his own actions and the extent of Shackleton's breakdown implicitly blaming him for the unimpressive southernmost record, leading to a long enmity between the two. 
God, if I had been on my own, I would have carefully propelled myself with dog farts all the way to the southern pole. But Nothing this fellow... But the magnificent girth of my nationalist stiffy pointing the way to way south. <laughs> and then this fellow had to go about losing all his molars. Slowed <laughs> us down terribly. Editing his newspapers. Ridiculous. <laughs> And he gave very poor educational lectures. The discovery itself was supposed to leave in either March or April, under the assumption that this point, at this point, the ice would have thawed enough to release the ship. But on Scott's return, it was yet stuck around five in around five miles of solid ice. So instead, Scott chose to remain for another year, during which the team continued data collection and exploration of the surrounding terrain. Uh, the removal of Shackleton failed to cool tensions, however, as in his absence, Scott's jealousy and frustration shifted to Armitage. The following spring, when Scott made his own attempt at reaching the westernmost point in order to break the record of Armitage's own scouting party, he ordered Armitage to stay with the ship. This prevented him from going south either, perhaps for fear he might eclipse Scott's own record. It's almost like they shouldn't have let a dude with an absolute, like, quarter-inch fuse run a very expensive South Pole trip. This was not well decided. It was just like one old man's opinion that this guy seemed legit. Mm. Like, and like, to be fair to Scott, he's not an atrocious leader. He is baseline competent. But it's always gonna be someone else's fault. Yeah, he's extremely proud and has a tendency to shift blame. And that's fine in most circumstances where he's just sort of like a low-level captain in the Navy, but this is not, this is a very fragile situation with a very thin margin for error. And having an inability to take advice and to listen to people you disagree with, that can be deadly. If you're the kind of guy who punches a hole in the wall because the Wi-Fi is down, you don't get to go to Antarctica. That's you don't just get how it works. You get to go to Missouri. <laughs> you're probably already in Missouri. That's probably where you started. You get to go to the other part of Missouri. <laughs> Good for you. As much Missouri as your little wall-punching heart can handle. For the Western attempt, purely man-hauling was used, as Scott was by now so disdainful of the dogs that when a litter of puppies was born aboard the ship, he ordered them put down. <laughs> what uh, the fuck? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's just killing dogs left and right. I think he's gotten a taste for it. <laughs> he's just angry with the concept of dogs. Um, otherwise, Scott largely conducted this journey the way he had his last. Even without the dogs, he pushed the, his, the party of six on a brutal nine to ten hour march every day, each man pushing a minimum of 240 pounds or 110 kilos, stopping only when the weather required it. The sleds were overburdened and shoddily maintained, leading them to break down. One man collapsed from altitude sickness at around 9,000 feet above sea level and begged the other members of the team not to tell Scott. <laughs> Because he's going to shoot you. He's just killed a whole litter of puppies just because it's Tuesday. Yeah, he's going to put you down. You just saw him straight ice a bag of puppies. <laughs> you don't show weakness in front of the puppy smasher. Like, Yeah, just unnecessary dog murder is this dude's M.O. <laughs> Seriously, this guy's killed like 30 dogs and he didn't even make it to the South Pole yet. 
On November 22nd, Scott ordered Lieutenant Skelton, unable to keep up with the pace, back to base alongside two of the other men, continuing on with Edgar Evans and William Lashley. On December 1st, Scott placed a flag at the, the new westernmost point before returning to base camp, arriving on December 24th. This journey covered 600 miles over two months, around the same distance per day as the southern journey. Upon Scott's return, the Discovery was yet stuck fast in the ice, but by no means did he have the clearance or the financials to spend another year in the Arctic. If they were unable to free the ship, they would be forced to abandon it and return with the most recent supply vessels, the Morning and the Terra Nova, which had arrived on January 5th, 1904. The men spent 40 days attacking the sea ice, alternately sawing it, shooting it, ramming it, and even detonating it. Shoot it! Shoot it, fellows! Shoot the ice! Surely that will intimidate it. A warning shot right into its its surface. And it's not like a modern... Sh they don't have modern shotguns that can, like, turn no. a deer into a fine mist. They have, like, 1901 muskets. <laughs> yeah, like, you can wave the, wave the bullet as it goes by. You're making the ice slightly bumpier. What is that going to do? <laughs> this is a reverse Zamboni. <laughs> Now the ice is pitted. You're just <laughs> making it hard for the Canadians when they're going to skate by on their own expedition. <laughs> on February 16th, thanks to a final explosive charge, the Discovery broke free and began its return to New Zealand. Despite criticism from numerous corners, after arriving in London in September 1904, Scott received widespread popular adulation, as well as personal congratulations and an audience with King Edward VII, alongside his captain's braid and braids and numerous medals. Further, after the publication of his book, Scott was appointed as assistant to the Director of Naval Intelligence and as captain of the Victorious in 1906. <laughs> this dude spent three years in Antarctica murdering dogs and shooting ice. <laughs> he gets he gets everything? He gets everything. He gets the girls, he gets the money, he gets the party. <laughs> he gets the audience with Eddie. Just magnificent. He just spent three years down there making fun of scurvy victims and throwing puppies overboard. <laughs> He was a man of science, Janelle. <laughs> I believe you're going to die soon. Ha ha ha. Hand me that puppy. <laughs> the control group is all of them, and the treatment is death. <laughs> He's basically just the Cruella de Vil of the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> but he's still wearing wool, which is less effective than dog fur. <laughs> In addition to this modest career advancement, Scott was catapulted into the position of national hero, and despite the difficulties both natural and self-inflicted of his first Antarctic journey, Scott's return was only a matter of money and time. And we will pick up there next time on Fat French and Fabulous. Paul, where I get to tell you about more dog murder. <laughs> Excellent. And I get to... Make jokes while also watching headlights across the street. <laughs> uh, we hope you had fun. Um, as much fun as you can have while imagining any of this. Uh, and uh, we'll see you around. I have been Jessica. And I am still Janelle. And we are Fat, fat French, and, and Fabulous. fabulous.
Hey everybody, it's Jessica. I hope you've been enjoying our last series of episodes. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find me on Instagram or uh, on Twitter at I am not a lungfish. You can also find Janelle also on Instagram uh, nowadays. I don't know if it's the same as her Twitter handle, but her Twitter handle is uh, at uh, VeryBadLlama. Uh, I hope you also check out some of Janelle's new uh, comic uh, comic uh, stories online on her new blog, allwitnobrevity.com. Have a nice week. <laughs>